Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. Hello and welcome back to the second episode of Still Watching Mrs. America. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Lawson. So right now we are in a funky little time and still watching where we are covering the end of Westworld and beginning of Mrs. America. So this is the second episode we're recording covering Mrs. America, but we are talking about the fourth episode of the Mrs. America season titled Betty. So if you're not caught up to the episode titled Betty episode four, uh, which should be available for you FX on Hulu, uh, you might want to press pause and catch up. But our first episode that we recorded last week, Covered episodes one through three. And that was and now Fred, Barney, Wilma. <laughs> and now we're in bed. Alice, Ted. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So, um, so we covered those episodes last week. We have a little bit more space this week to go a little bit more in depth in the episode since we don't have to cram three episodes worth of discussion into one podcast episode. We can spend a more leisurely, uh, episode discussing Betty and everything that happens therein. Just in case you're joining us for the first time, what we do when still watching is we break down the latest episode of some television show that we're watching kind of obsessively right now. We are currently obsessed with Mrs. America. Uh, if you have any comments, questions, concerns, corrections, we didn't get any corrections last week, but also we didn't have a chance to say much last week. Uh, you can email us stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your feedback. I'd also love to hear from people's experiences. One of the coolest things um, I ever did to learn about sort of the feminist movement at this time is when I was in my early 20s, uh, I was in a book club with my, a, a bunch of my friends who are the same age. And then one of my friend's mom and like all of her friends. So it's this, you know, dual generational book club. I know it was a very cool early 20 something to be in this book club, but we read, uh, Joan Didion's white album and there was actually like kind of this angry argument between the generations about, you know, feminism and what the younger generation takes for granted and stuff like that. And it's, it's this conversation that is 
always stuck with. So I'd love to get some feedback from from folks who are maybe a little older than Richard and I are and who lived this movement and, and were on the ground and, and have some firsthand experience that we are, you know, completely um, ignorant about. And I would love to hear from people younger than us who are coming to some of this, maybe with even fresher eyes than, than we have. And I would just, I'd love to hear from everyone. So still watching pod at gmail.com. On this episode of the podcast, we will be hearing from uh, two actresses on from the show. We have interviews with Rose Byrne, who plays Gloria Steinem, and Tracy Ullman, who plays Betty Friedan. So you will hear both from both of them later on in this episode. But first, Richard, you and I are going to talk about Betty. Um, I loved this episode. I mean, I'm, I've loved every episode that I've watched so far, but uh, there is so much going on in this episode, and it starts with this really smart frame. Well, it starts with um, the historical framework is January, 1973 uh, and Roe v. Wade. And that being this big step forward in this movement, in this fight, particularly as it pertains to Gloria Steinem, uh, you know, who we explored in, in the episode Gloria, you know, how, how does this land for you, Richard? Um, this immediate historical, like huge seminal historical context for this episode? Um, I mean, it, it's interesting because it's such a big deal and it's something that is still being, you know, bitterly fought over now. And it's not an afterthought in this episode, but it's just kind of the backdrop because this whole season is about the ERA versus the fight, um, specifically in, ter- uh, in the courts with Roe v. Wade. Um, but it's just crazy to think, you know, um, I think in an, in an earlier episode, uh, it's in the lead up to the 1972 presidential election, and you hear about Watergate happening, and you're like, right, Watergate, the break-in happened before the election, and then he was elect- uh, Nixon was reelected. And, and to think that the ERA was being fought for while Roe v. Wade is, you know, in the courts, like, it's just crazy, like, how much history was happening at the same time, I guess, because I think, you know, from the lens of the of the present day, it can seem like it's all plotted neatly on a, on a timeline, where everything had its own discrete moment. And, you know, they informed each other these events, but they weren't happening, you know, concurrently. And yet, here we are getting that exact, um, you know, scene. Right. And so that's, that's sort of the span we're looking at. We're looking at January 1973. And then the debate that happened at, um, in Illinois was May 1973. So that's sort of like the time frame that we're dealing with here. And, um, the other sort of cultural framing for the really smart cultural framing for this episode is it opens with Betty, Betty for Dan and her friend Natalie played by the great Miriam Shore, um, watching an episode of Mary Tyler Moore. I watched so much Mary Tyler Moore growing up. Did you watch, uh, Mary Richard? That was not one of my household shows. No. I mean, I was into shows of that era, particularly the Brady bunch, uh, which was a much more, uh, uh, let's say cleaned up version of, of that time and place. But, um, I have gone back and seen episodes as a grown up and, um, it's, it was such a sharp, you know, show for any era, but particularly that era, you know, with the women's lib movement, um, really, uh, reaching a kind of zenith. Um, it feels like maybe it wasn't on purpose part of that movement, but definitely became an emblem of it. I mean, just even like the theme song. 
One of my favorite stories around the Mary Tyler Moore show, um, and this is relevant to, to the entire episode, um, is that, um, Mary Tyler Moore, the actress was before she shot her own show, Mary Tyler Moore, um, she was on, uh, the Dick Van Dyke show. She played, uh, Laura, Rob's husband on the Dick Van Dyke show. So she was like a, she's a sitcom wife. And then this new show that, that came on after, after that, after the Dick Van Dyke show is over, you know, she gets her own show and she's playing Mary. And the original premise for the Mary Tyler Moore show was, um, that Mary was a divorce, a freshly divorced woman coming to the city to, to, you know, to try to support herself and start a career. Um, and the network brass at the time insisted that, um, she not be a divorcee because they were afraid that American audiences would think she had divorced Dick Van Dyke. And so, they were like, even though Laura, um, Laura Petrie and, and Mary Richards are two different people, they were like, America won't like it. She can't be a divorcee. She has to be like a single woman. So she wound up like a, you know, an older single woman. And, um, it's like the Brady Bunch, how they couldn't have the parents be divorced. So they're both, um, you know, a widow and widower. Widows. And they never address <laughs> yeah. the fact that these kids have like lost a parent. <laughs> Each. Like, I said they're never mentioned. It's never mentioned. Yeah, it's yeah. true. Yeah. It's true. But the big, the big framing device of the, of the episode is this idea of like Mary Tyler Moore and then her friend Rhoda Morgan Stern played by the great Valerie Harper. And like Valerie Harper is this gorgeous woman, but at the time it's this idea that like Mary is this like, you know, glamorous waspy single and that, you know, um, Rhoda Morgan, Morgan Stern is this like, you know, Jewish, like, quote unquote, like more desperately single friend of hers, which is ridiculous when you look at Valerie Harper. And then eventually Rhoda was so popular. She gets her own show in, um, 1978. But, but at this point she's still Mary's upstairs neighbor. And there's this great moment at the beginning of the episode when, um, when Betty points out, she's like, Oh yeah, no, Mary never goes to Rhoda's apartment. And it's just this whole, this whole dichotomy of like, okay, Gloria Steinem is the Mary and Betty is the Rhoda. And that's, that's the roles that they've been assigned, uh, in this movement. And, um, I just thought that that was a really clever way to, to frame what will become this episode long, season long conflict between these women. Well, and, and movement long. I mean, you know, I think that it's interesting to see these things happen in, uh, the show's version of real time. Um, you know, these kind of intra, movement conflicts and um, the idea of, of, you know, okay, well this older generation helped, but how much do we listen to them and how much do we kind of pay them, um, you know, reverence, but because some of their ideas are a little bit fustier and crustier than ours are, um, you know, I think p- people now would say that about Gloria Steinem. And, and so I think it's, I, it's good and important that the show is introducing or, or further exploring that kind of, you know, half generational dialogue, um, where, you know, you know, I see that a lot, you know, in, in the gay rights movement now where, um, no one, well, a lot of people don't seem to appreciate exactly how we got to the point we are while at the same time, it's important to recognize that we think about things differently than, um, you know, people in the movement did 40 years ago. Exactly. And I mean, the micro generational aspect of Betty Friedan and Gloria Steinem, like, because the, the feminine mystique comes out in the sixties and, um, 
you know, we're, we're right at the beginning of the seventies. So it's only been a few years. And yet Betty Friedan is relegated to like mother of the movement, a phrase that she roundly rejects, obviously. Um, but yeah, this whole idea, I've been watching, I've been trying to like sort of, uh, you know, bone up on some supplemental material. And I was watching this great documentary that's on, um, HBO from a, a few years ago, uh, called, uh, Gloria in her own words, the 2011, uh, Gloria Steinem documentary. And, um, she, Gloria Steinem, you know, in that documentary is talking about how, you know, the perception of the women's movement and, and the show has already, you know, touched on this several times, perception of the women's movement, um, and not just the second wave feminists, but the suffragettes is that, you know, they are like musty, fusty, uh, like desperate women who can't get a man. And so they've, you know, they become, uh, libbers, um, which I love the way they use libbers as this like bad word, <laughs> um, in this show. And I mean, I don't, it sets my teeth on age, but it's very, very effective. And, um, and Gloria Steinem in that documentary, she goes, um, to, you know, she's like, I, I was the same way. I thought of suffragettes as boring, sexless creatures. And then she said, to do that is one way to stop the movement. So because I was obviously none of those things, maybe I helped to break a false stereotype. So it's this idea that like Gloria Steinem's beauty and her glamour, this is, this was like in the very first episode, um, Sarah Paulson's character, Alice and, uh, Phyllis are like, the other woman I understand, but Gloria Steinem, she's so pretty. Why is she a feminist sort of thing? And, um, so this idea that her beauty is being weaponized to sort of help, um, break, because that's just a way to, to, yeah, to shut down the movement is to say, oh, well, they're just sad because they can't get a man. And Gloria Steinem's like, oh, I can get so many men. It's fine. I'm fine. Don't worry about me. Um, but that the way in which her beauty and her glamour, are weaponized for good, but then also in this episode, you weaponized against her. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I, you know, I think the thing that we see, um, with Steinem, uh, from her perception from outside of the movement is that kind of frustrated. Well, but I, I don't, I just don't understand why would she want that, you know? And I think that this is really about, uh, and what Friedan tries to do in the debate with Schlafly toward the end of this episode is try to, you know, explain that, 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 that there's not really a binary that the feminist movement is working with. You know, it's, it's not either or, it's all things. And I think that people on Schlafly's side, like, really have a hard time seeing it that way because they've set up that kind of system for themselves. And I think it's interesting to watch that work as an effective tool, um, to some extent, but also because it's not absolutist in its ideology, it's not be pretty and not feminist and, and have men or not, or the opposite, you know, it's a lot, it's a, it's a variance. It, that, that kind of vagueness can work against the movement, um, as we see in this episode. Another thing to say about, um, the historical framing of Roe v. v. Wade, which, you know, uh, we see as a huge step forward for the feminist movement, but it's also in its own odd way, a huge step forward for Schlafly and her movement, because the Roe being passed prompted like evangelicals, church leaders who, you know, before might have wanted to stay out of politics to rush into the political landscape and start fighting um, the feminist movement uh, because of Roe v. Wade. And so it's just one of those things that sort of pushed. It's so, it's so incredible to watch these echoes of our current um, 
you know, it's just same as it ever was, right? Phyllis sees it as this huge defeat, but it might have, in fact, been the thing that really helped her, or at least a major thing that really helped her in the end. Yeah, exactly. And I think that there's a, a, an important difference to be made between Roe v. Wade and, you know, the hoped for passing of the ERA, you know, we get the update at the stop at the top of the episode that 30 out of the 38 required states have ratified it. And, you know, if the 38 do, then it becomes part of the Constitution. Um, whereas Roe v. Wade was a court decision. And, you know, a lot of people who um, on either side have have strong feelings about the uh, it's better to pass things legislatively than have a court decide it, because if a court decides it, then it can always be blamed on this narrow group of nine people um, or five people who voted for it versus it seeming to have the the kind of sweeping legislative wave of, you know, a populist wave to get passed. And I think we still, you know, again, with the gay rights, um, we see that with the gay rights movement where, you know, um, DOMA was struck down in the courts and thus gay marriage was made, you know, legal around the country. And some people say, but that's tenuous because then all you have to do is get one court to overturn it and then it's over, you know. Um, so I think it's interesting that they set up both of those things and we know which one lasted thus far which is Roe, and the one that never even passed, which is the RA. So I think it's it's presenting a pretty complicated political, um, you know, strategy, I guess. The um, the conversation between Betty and and her friend uh, at the beginning here also touches on some some swings that the various women involved in the movement took at each other in the press. Betty for Dan did take some swipes at Gloria Steinem and, Be- and Bella Abzug in the press. And then uh, Nora Ephron wrote this pretty poisonous takedown of Betty Friedan um, in Esquire. Nora was a columnist in Esquire at the time. And um, I was able to find that story. Um, it's in a collection of uh, Nora Ephron's uh, work. It's in a, it's in a Nora Ephron sort of column collection called Crazy Salad, some things about women and scribble, scribble notes on the media. Um, and there's a piece she wrote called Miami that she wrote in 1972. Um, that's all about the sort of Betty and Gloria divide and Yes, she does sort of uh, in her own way allude to Betty as, as the wicked witch of the West and, and Gloria as Glinda. Um, and she says this thing, but she's, it's, it's, it's more sympathetic to, um, to Betty than I would have guessed having watched this episode. But also if I were Betty for Dan and I read that, I probably would have the same reaction this Betty in this episode has to it. Um, but there's a line in it where it says, uh, where Nora Ephron writes, it's her baby, damn it, her movement, speaking of Betty. It's Betty's baby, damn it, her movement. Is she supposed to sit still and let the beautiful thin lady run off with it? Which is once again, that sort of like Mary Tyler Moore, Rhoda Morgenstern, Morgenstern, like divide there of, of these two figures. And also like she describes, Betty just being like on uh, uncomfortable and on the outside and Tracy Ullman, I think does such a good job encapsulating that in this party scene that we see where she's just like off to the side eating food while watching, you know, these other women have an easier rapport with each other at this party. Yeah. I, I you know, Tracy Ullman has long been a favorite of many, including myself um, because she would, you know, she had these great sketch shows where she played, you know, an Anna Devere Smith level of characters, um, you know, from made up people to real people. Um, she's a, she's an, um, a genius at, you know, aping tone or cadence or whatever, just to get, you know, at the heart of a person that she's playing. Um, but it's really fun on the, on the occasion that she gets to, to just see her. And yes, she is playing a real person, but like, she's also just playing a 
character i mean she's acting you know like it's a full-fledged funny serious kind of thing and i think she i mean not that she needed to rise very far given her stature but you know she she meets the occasion i think quite well um and it's i'm really glad that they devoted an episode uh, specifically to her even though you know it's her storyline it's not the only one in the episode yeah, this the way that um, this season is structured in that it highlights various women while still having room for all the other women, I think is really, really masterfully done. And, and the timing of when to highlight them, you know, like I can just imagine them putting together this season and looking at the timeline and saying, okay, I mean, th- this debate, basically what Davi Weller said, the creator, is that the season is structured around the times in which the Schlafly movement and the, the pro ERA movement sort of touched each other. And, uh, you know, this Betty Phyllis debate is definitely one of those points of contact. And so it makes sense that this is the Betty, um, episode, but, um, you know, they're not quite all that easy. There are a few debates that are sort of no brainers as to who to highlight when, but there are other instances like, when we have a Bella movement or when moment or when we have a Jill Ruckelshaus moment, et cetera, um, that are a little bit more, uh, you know, uh, give, you know, up to creative license, uh, as to, as to when that goes in there. So there's just so much about this show that is so well, perfectly researched and, uh, replicated. But one of the things that I know that they, that they really had to generate out of, Whole cloth is a lot of the Phyllis Schlafly behind the scenes stuff. Um, because, you know, one of their main sources is actually the Eagle, Eagle archive, the Phyllis Schlafly archive. So you, like a lot of the video or documents that I've been trying to go look up to see, did this really happen? How did this happen? You can find on the Schlafly archives, actually, but it's this home life stuff with the Schlafly household that I think they really needed to, you know, and, and for the Fredan household too, I'm sure, but like that they really had to get into. And so when you see this conversation between Phyllis Schlafly and her followers about the John Birch society and this accusation that she's, you know, sort of, is she racist? You know, what's going on here? You see like some hints of, of doubt from Sarah Paulson's character, Alice, um, this, they have to sort of, generate but i think it it doesn't feel at all blown out of proportion it feels really uh grounded what do you what do you make of this of this like john birch society and how, and how it touches the schlafly movement here well yeah i mean the birch society stuff um you know it's an old organization but it really um my understanding is it really kind of came to power uh in a really influential way in the 70s and 80s um and this kind of bircherism is now sort of um thought to be the sort of genesis point of the trump administration um in it's you know kind of embracing conspiracy theory it's heavily anti-government you know or at least anti-communism or socialism as they see it but really anti-federal government um you know, and, and it's fringy. Um, and I think, you know, I think as it relates to Schlafly and the stop ERA movement, I understand that, you know, we have a big star attached. She's producing. She's great in it. It's really interesting to see a rounded human version of a sort of, you know, a, a great for some people villain of the recent past. Um, but I do, I will be curious to see how audiences, um, kind of accept that humanizing you know in in this episode um we see phyllis both struggle to reconcile um the fact that 
yes, it's bad PR for some, in some senses to have these associations with these extreme right groups. But on the other hand, some of her members are part of them and they have power, you know, and I think that what we've seen in the four episodes so far is really about Schlafly. Uh, I mean, in the show's version of things, kind of bartering away bits and bits of her um, principle mm-hmm. in order to mm-hmm. succeed. And I think that's a really interesting thing. At the same time, I think there will be people out there, and maybe I'm one of them to some extent, who are like, you know what, she does not deserve this humanizing treatment because, like, if you really read about her and, and, and listen to interviews with her, like, she believed all of this stuff to her bones, you know? This was not about sort of expedience, political expediency. Um, I don't really have an answer either way about, like, how the show's treating it, but I think it, it does present an interesting dialogue, um, and I think it's probably why it poses such a, you know, alluring challenge to an actor like Kate Blanchett, um, because my hunch is that she's going to, you know, be the villain at the end. But right now they're trying to, um, I think successfully calibrate that villainy in a, in a human way. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely about the bedfellows, you know, that she feels like she has to embrace in order to build her coalition and how that, what that does to erode her, you know, moral high ground. Um, I hear what you're saying and I, and I have seen that response as well. And I guess my question to that is like, what's, what is more villainous? <laughs> and I'm, I'm not sure I know the answer. Actually genuinely believing all of this to your bones or, you know, absorbing messages of hatred, uh, and inequity in order to get ahead in life, even if you don't believe in them. Well, I think, you know, that's a huge question that we have now. You know, I think that for me, one of the prime examples is someone like uh, Ivanka Trump, where it's like, well, no, she's from New York. She went to these schools. There's no way she believes any of this stuff. And it's like, but she has let her father and and administration she works for embrace Mm -hmm. them in order to get things done, I guess, or to or simply to rule, to have power. And so is the kind of complicit uh, stuff. To me, it kind of flattens out to being the same thing, you know, because yeah, Even if I you agree. don't spout out the the actual the rhetoric, um, you're 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 building a foundation on that rhetoric anyway. So you're using it either passively or actively, but either way, you're using it. Something I love that is um, the the genius reflection of this Bircherism conversation around Phyllis Schlafly and her members um, is this pitch meeting at Miss Magazine, uh, where, you know, one, one member wants to write about Phyllis Schlafly and Gloria, you know, as her editor is like, basically don't feed the trolls, right? Is Gloria's attitude. Uh, it's a very familiar one. Like don't, once again, we can't help but bring parallels to Trump where I just remember people saying like, don't take him seriously. It's not worth taking seriously. And then it was like too late, uh, you know, by the time people were taking him seriously, kind of thing. Yeah. I think, but you have that. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I, I think that that to me is the most interesting dynamic of this episode in particular, um, mm. which is this inner movement conflict, inter movement conflict about do we recognize Schlafly or not? And mm-hmm. they're both sides make a good case. Um, and I think that, you know, because should this person be met on stage and had their, have their beliefs confronted and called out and, and, and asked to provide, you know, facts and data and all that stuff sure yes but also 
Unfortunately, one side of thing tends to be better at the jujitsuing than the other, you know, and the mm-hmm. right is really good at an provoking attack. And then all when they're attacked saying, Oh, well, well, I mean, look at this person, you know, this person's crazy. Oh, triggered. You're a snowflake, blah, blah, blah. You know, you're, you know, you're a crazy liver or whatever. You know, they're very good at that. And, um, I think it's just so easy to play into those hands. I mean, I think about. Um, in the current day, uh, someone like Tommy Laren or Charlie Kirk or Candace Owens, all of these people who should not be famous, should not be these kind of leading lights of a certain sect of the, the right, the far right movement or whatever, but they are partly or largely because on Twitter and elsewhere, people on the left kept going at them and responding to them and raising their profile and raising their profile and raising their profile. And then all of a sudden they were national political celebrities, you know, and I, I can see Steinem's, you know, in, in a very different context, very pre-internet, all that. I can see her hesitancy to do exactly that. And at the same time, I can also be sympathetic to Friedan where it's like, but this person is getting momentum. We have to meet that momentum and confront it. Um, and so I think we don't really know the answer to how to deal with these things. You know, trolls exist, but how do we acknowledge that reality? Well, I mean, the same thing is true. I was, I was reading, um, a post actually that Damon Lindelof put up on it, on his Instagram about how he was at the women's march, uh, in January in Los Angeles. And there are about 25,000 people participating according to him. And he was like, meanwhile, he's like, but this was considered this year in 2020. He's like, but this was considered like a, you know, a, a, a light turnaround and it was relative to, you know, two years previous or whatever. He was like, meanwhile, <laughs> about 5,000 people total have been protesting around the country around the like way in which we've, you know, the, the coronavirus has closed down, uh, you know, the country effectively. And they're getting so much more airtime like that. If you were just sitting at home, you would think that movement was so much larger than this other movement because of the way the media is covering it and not just the media, but like social media. And so it is, it's all about perspective and in putting Phyllis Schlafly up on stage with Betty Friedan, the quote unquote mother of the movement, you're giving her equal stature. Um, and it, and it's a problem. I don't know the right answer. Just like you, I don't think I know the right answer because I don't know if like turning a blind eye until it's too late uh, to fully address the movement is the right move either that being said so i was i was trying to find the the if there was any like video footage of this debate that happens in illinois um i saw i you know there's a lot of uh newspaper coverage um you know and she betty friedan did say that thing about burn you at the stake that is a thing that she said at this debate but i couldn't find video but i did find video of phyllis Schlafly and um Betty Friedan debating the ERA on Good Morning America uh in 1976 so a couple years later um and once again this is on the Philosophy Eagles YouTube page that's where you find like all this stuff they are the archive and um i mean i i i have no questions as to why this is on their YouTube page because Phyllis is like is has the upper hand rhetorically at every turn and Betty is so flustered and it's it's painful to watch because it's painful to watch a debate where you agree ideologically with the person who is not the more successful debater in this context you know and phyllis schlafly one of her her like villainous superpowers is like her composure you know and so she does this thing you know i'm zooming ahead to the debate but she does this thing at the end of the debate where 
you know, Betty loses her cool and we're all like, Oh no, when that happens. And then, you know, Phil Schlafly gets to just like simper and say like, well, you just made my point for me about the intemperance of the movie, you know? And it's like, you're like, Oh no. And this happens all the time still with, with people that I admire losing their cool uh, in debates and political debates. And and it opens the door for people who, um, you know, are, are sort of wishy-washy on things, you know, maybe I agree with the women's movement, but that free Dan has always kind of rankled me, you know? And then all of a sudden you see, I mean, I'm imagining some viewer in the seventies, you see this thing and it's like, Oh, well, there you go. Now I have reason. Like here's, here's, here's concrete proof of why I never liked Betty Friedan. And in doing, in, in sort of finding that proof, you kind of, to some extent are siding with Schlafly, you know? Um, And, and, and it, so it becomes a sort of personality thing where, you know, we see that in presidential politics and elsewhere, but like where the personality can oftentimes uh, win out in terms of priority over the actual principle. And, and I think that, you know, we need look not very far in terms of Hillary Clinton to see how that can manifest itself pretty um, disastrously on, uh, you know, uh, pl- the political stage. Absolutely. I mean, Hillary um, did wait. win the, the uh, you know popular vote. So <laughs> she, was, she she won the popular vote, and she did not lose her cool in anywhere. No. Like any, like incredibly, did not lose her cool in the same way. But it it didn't matter in the end. Um. So to, to go back to that Miss Magazine pitch meeting, though, like um, the other thing that happens in that meeting, which is the you know is the more perfect mirror of of the Bertrandism conversation, is this efforts by um. Margaret, one of the writers uh, for Miss Magazine, to pitch this um, article on tokenism. And this is just one of the funniest things. I mean, funniest and depressing things I've ever seen in my life uh, is this group of white women being like, I'm sorry, what do you mean? And you don't mean us, right? Like, well, I mean, you don't feel that way here, right? That you're being... And I, I don't understand what you mean. And it's just like these well-meaning... Uh, or maybe not so well-meaning idiots. Um, and Margaret sort of just, you know, slapping a smile on her face and being like, Oh no, I didn't mean you sort of thing. That is, that is what Mrs. America is forcing us to do, right? Is just to acknowledge the not just deficits, but like damaging aspects of a movement um, that a lot of us largely see as, as positive, you know? Well, right. And I think that, you know, um, that, that important sort of, self-conception of people who, um, you know, consider themselves on, you know, the right side of politics, especially on the left in terms of identity politics, which I'm not saying that identity politics are bad. I think they are just politics, but like, I think there, there can be a sense of like among, you know, a certain generation of let's say white feminists or of white gay rights activists or whatever, who are like, really don't like to um, be confronted with the, the the fact that they are not exactly on the vanguard of um, right. the movement in a way, you know, well, what, what do you mean? I have to consider that now. I don't, I, but I'm, I'm kind of, I'm leading the charge here. You know, I'm, I'm working at Ms. Magazine magazine. Please don't like, you know, trouble my, my my view of myself with exactly. this 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 yeah. thing you know you know what i mean and i think i think that that's an interesting um and sad dynamic um that uh you know i i think it's good that the show is showing 
those warts. It's not a hagiography about Steinem or, or the magazine or Friedan or Bella Absook. It's it's being like, well, yeah, they were they did a lot of good things, but also they were clearly gaping flaws in the um in the fabric of the of the movement at the time. So the, the that's the shot, and then the chaser is this sort of um party salon that the character Flo Kennedy, played by the great Nisi Nash, um, and Margaret Sloan Hunter is the full name of that woman, played by Bria Henderson. And so they're at this party. Um, that Flo Kennedy, a real life uh you know figure, so is Margaret Sloan Hunter. Um, Flo Kennedy used to throw these Sundays Sundays at Flo's, uh, is what she called them. These like gatherings of um black women to discuss. Uh, you know events and we we see flow um uh, attack flaws in her own movement here um because there are women at this party who are who are uh dismissive of margaret for a couple reasons number one um because she's gay and number two this idea that working with white feminists at all is uh you know a defeat um, I will for, I wrote it down. I will forever cherish the phrase horizontal hostility, mm-hmm. um, from, from Flo, from Nisi Nash. Um, and this is just an incredible, incredible scene that once again, it's just like, I just really value this show showing the cracks in every single pocket, uh, every single community of this movement. I mean, they show that there's not a hundred percent cohesion on the other side, but it's a lot more in lockstep, you know, and, um, if if a movement you know it needs many heads it, it needs to have move in a different to many different directions it needs to have intersectional considerations all that stuff the problem is the great problem of american politics is that like there generally tends to be another side that is much more moving as a monolith and um that is i think why the struggle for all of these good things equality civil rights all that has is so difficult it's because um, we're trying to satisfy, we, I say we, but like, you know, the, the, the right side of things is trying to satisfy as many people as possible, whereas the other side just wants their thing confirmed. Exactly. And the, the, the final chapter of this storyline, um, is, you know, sees Flo come to Shirley Chisholm, played by Uzo Dubo, and, uh, discuss the idea of founding the National Black Feminist Organization, which she did. Uh, there's this funny little moment there where she says, like, oh yeah, two years. Uh, two years, then they'll be over it. Uh, the, the National Black Feminist Organization did, in fact, l- last from 1973 to 1975. Um, but this is an organization that was founded, uh, quote unquote, to address ourselves to the particular and specific needs of the larger, but almost cast aside half of the black race in America, the black woman. Um, and so this is the way in which the movement is schisming and then the way in which certain members of the movement are trying to hold all those pieces together because you see Gloria, like see this flyer with Shirley on it and, you know, think about Margaret and offer her offices. And Margaret's like, yeah, no, I'm good. Thank you very much. I've, I've had my bad experience here. Thank you so much. Um, you know, and, and all of that. And exactly. It's that kind of um, infighting, which happens in almost every leftist movement that, you know, ultimately winds up hurting us over and over again. This is, again, it's sort of similar to what you're saying with Tracy Ullman, where, like, Nisi Nash is this incredible comedian, and she is capable of just, like, really broad, high comedy. Um, but here she is, um, just as she did, she does in her show Claws on TNT, like, um, 
given a real role. She's funny, but she's also just like really chewing into it in a way that's extremely satisfying. Yeah, and she gets to lay out, you know, in a kind of funny aphoristic way the the struggle at the heart of this and there's no answer for it but she's like you know i know what a difference between a shoe and a lawnmower uh they both have uses but i don't i'm not mistaking one for being the other um and i think you know i think that is kind of the complicated way that we have to look at these things um that anyone in in a progressive movement has to look at things there's no perfect answer for who to align with and how to agree and how to compromise and all that stuff of course not um but um you know I'm, i'm much more likely to take that kind of advice from from her than I am, you know, maybe from uh, Friedan, I guess, in this kind of schema of this episode. But anyway, yeah, Nisi Nash is great. And if people want to see more of her beyond this, beyond Claws, beyond Reno 911, which I believe is now going to be on new episodes on Quibi, which is kind of crazy, um, watch um, Getting On, the amazing, amazing, amazing uh, HBO show adapted from a, a British series. That's But Nisi Nash is on that, and she is really excellent. Let's hit on Gloria before we wind up the episode with uh, Betty and Phyllis, in which, you know, this this thing happens to Gloria in this episode, just as, you know, Nora Ephron is defending her in Columns and Esquire, and Betty is resenting her because, you know, she's so beautiful and adored. Um, that beauty is, you know, being turned back on her um, with this lewd pornographic um image of herself that was a was a, a real thing that happened um once again in the uh Steinem documentary you can see Gloria Steinem talk about it um but basically um Al Goldstein who was a pornographer um tacked up this poster outside of the Miss offices that had a naked uh drawing of Gloria with a bunch of, um, you know, penises around it. And it was called like pin the cock on the feminist. Um, and you know, this is the thing that Gloria talks about one of many things that happened to her in terms of being attacked for her looks, um, in, in a way you don't expect. And, uh, Al Goldstein, I was like, I was looking up some information on Al Goldstein and, and one of his like listed as one of his memorable quote unquote quotes. um, is when asked what he planned to give feminist writer Gloria Steinem for Christmas, he said syphilis. So like, this is the kind of just tremendous human being we're dealing with here. Uh Um, but in that, um, in that uh, documentary, Gloria in her own words, Gloria Steinem recalls exactly what Bella Abzug uh, in this episode says, which is like your body and my labia or whatever. And in, in a way that like just made her improbably laugh at a moment when she felt extremely dehumanized and attacked. Yeah. I mean, it's really, you know, I I think that when considering uh, the free speechy porny kind of people in the seventies, I think my head tends to go to Larry Flint who, you know, is sort of a, to some hero of the free speech movement. Um, And you don't really seem, I haven't really thought about the people who, traded in that kind of smutty humor kind of thing, like really actively working against things like this kind of depicts. So I, I think, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's grim. I mean, but um, I think it's a, a crucial detail in terms of understanding um, the, the ways that Steinem was victimized during this. I mean, maybe it was different from the way other women in the movement were, but um, you know, they were all, they were getting it, they were getting assailed really from all sides in all ways. I'm Claire Fallon, 
And I'm Emma Gray. We're culture writers, podcasters, and hosts of the show Love to See It. Every week, we give an unapologetically feminist dissection of reality dating shows, rom-coms, and other romance narratives. We unpack all the weird messages they send us about love, sex, and dating. And we dive into all the details with special guests like actors, authors, and cultural critics. You can find Love to See It wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every Tuesday. This is, I think, a great opportunity for us to hear from Rose Byrne. I wanted to start by asking you, you know, I think arguably Gloria Steinem is the most um, famous or well, still well-known figure of this movement uh, in this series. How much were you aware of um, Gloria Steinem and her legacy when you took the role? Like everyone. I mean, she's this, like, comic you know, kind of legendary figure at this point of feminism. Yeah, second wave feminism. And so I knew her. I knew her, but I was I was not intimately as informed as I am now. <laughs> but my, so to answer your question, it was more broad. It was much more the broad strokes that I knew about her. When I started, I said to Darby, where do we begin? Because there's just so much information to read and I was like what I was very specific period and it's this 10 year period that we were focusing on so that narrowed it down but she started me off she sent me this great package of um of of information and this huge pdf was there anything you know in in that archival information in those interviews was there anything that that proved particularly illuminating to you in terms of being able to access her as a as more of a human and less of an icon you know, the scrutiny that you're under in the public eye, I know a little bit about it, but not that much. I'm not, you know, whatever. The, the, the scrutiny that she was under was far more of a larger magnitude than I have ever experienced. But I know that you, the sort of process of it and what it takes from you and what it costs. And But someone like her, which is like, she was married to the movement. My old, my question was always like, what does is, what is this cost her, you know? And that's always interesting to me, and that's what I like seeing in a biopic too, because anything that's a puff piece is just dull. You know, you don't want to be a, it's not interesting to watch. And that's very hard with biopics to, I mean, kind of just want to honor the person, but you also, you, you want to, you know, understand them and you want them to be complex and flawed. So that was always my interest in it. And, um, but to answer your question, I think the, the interviews, I, I honestly, I just could not believe. The amount of, she was just, had a lot of vitriol. She was a polarizing figure, much more than I realized. Like, really polarizing for women and for men, but for feminists and for anti-feminists, obviously. But within the feminist movement, too. Betty Friedan, I mean, she, <laughs> she, was, uh, she was tough on Gloria. So that was really an eliminating to me, thinking, like, you have to have a pretty thick skin to just get up again at the end of the day and you know, not fall apart. And, and she never, she's, she's, she's famously quite unflappable, you know. She's, she has a very different style to the Betty Fidane, to the Bella Abzug, the Phyllis Schlafly. She's far more um, contained and composed and uh, her power is a far more sort of subtle, quiet power. Um, but power nonetheless. You you mentioned the, the Playboy Bunny story. I mean, I think one element of... Gloria Steinem and something that the show doesn't shy away from is, you know, how her, her personal beauty played into 
the role she played in the feminist movement. I think you, you know, we hear about in the first episode where they're like, well, I understand why some women are feminists, but why Gloria Steinem? She's so pretty. She could get a man. Why is she a feminist? You know? Yeah. And so, Mm -hmm, you know, mm how, how aware do you feel like she was of, of her personal beauty and its ability to mean something uh, different to the movement? Well, from her writing, she's always, she doesn't lean into it. She doesn't sort of talk about it that much offhandly, like here or there. She'll comment on someone's comment on her or something like that. But she doesn't, she doesn't dwell on it herself ever, which I think is interesting. She never sort of dedicates a chapter in her book about my this or that or my, you know, what people think of how I look or anything like that. Like she's, which is, she's so talked about like that. And she never, she doesn't give it any weight or time of day um, in, from her own personal writings, from what I read. And um, I could be wrong, but the research I did, <laughs> she never could have brought it up. But I, I love the way Darby deals with it because it's very witty, it's, but it's very, um, I don't think the show ever, objectifies her ever but the people in the show do the characters in the show do so it addresses it but it never is from a male gaze I don't think it it was a part of her story it was a it was absolutely a part of her of her journey was being like an it girl really and then becoming the face of this movement and stepping into that but I you know I I think women just under such such more scrutiny you know you're too pretty and not pretty enough constant barrage of scrutiny that you're under as a woman to do with your looks at men like they they just don't have that same written. Like, yeah, I love that comment that Bella Abside makes at the beginning when she's like, you know, I think AFK cared that he was really handsome and also, you know, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody cared about it. So um, I think it, it, the, close, the show is, in a very important way, I think highlights that um, double standard. Yeah, and I mean, you know, her, her, um, her beauty aside, she is you know, stylishly and there's iconography about her, her hair, the glasses, the whole thing. It's such Mm. an iconic look Um, for you as a performer, Mm. you know, what is something like that Gloria Steinem wig or, you know, any, any of these things that Mm. are just sort of like iconic to slip into, how does that help you Mm. uh, as a performer access the character? Um, It was essential trying to get, I just kept saying the silhouette. We have to get her silhouette. It's all because it's just so iconic. The silhouette of the hair, the glasses, the, the, the clothing. It's immediately, you know, it's recognizable. And that to me was, I just was obsessed with it. Like, we can get her silhouette. Where is it? Where is it? And how she moved. She was so graceful. She has, she has a background as a dancer. And there's such a, there's an innate sort of sensuality in Gloria. You know, she's, she's, you know, always, uh, I think just has that access of the centralness to her that's very not um, fabricated or forced. It's just sort of part of her communication and personality and was trying to sort of capture that as well. Um, so it was hugely important to do that. And I really want to get that. Marcel, who designed my wig, he, he designs all of Glenn's wigs, Glenn Close's wigs. And I immediately called Glenn. I was like, I have to have Marcel. <laughs> I got to get his last name for you because he's legendary. I was like, he's, and he doesn't, he doesn't work that much. He lives um, pretty remotely. So, um, but he did it for me. So <laughs> I don't know if I can, you know, we can't do it. We got to get it right. So it was really fun. I think fun. It was so fun to, to do that. And it informs everything. It informs how you walk and talk and, you know, all of it informs all of the performance. 
I love the idea of you calling like Glenn Close's, uh, you know, a reclusive wig maker to be like, please, I need oh, a glass yeah. wig. And they all knew. They're like, oh, Marcel, yeah, of course. We'll see if he'll do it. You know, like he's very particular and specific because he's that good. And um, and he did Glenn's wig. I mean, he's done all of wigs, but he did her wig for damages, which was just like flawless. So I, I wanted to ask you um, one thing I find really interesting about the depiction of Gloria in this series uh, and her legacy in general is her particular efforts to make sure that the feminist movement is an inclusive movement, uh, particularly to black women. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk about sort of what you discovered in your research um, on her and what discussions you had around that, those efforts of inclusivity. And also to lesbian yes. women, which was yes. Betty Friedan's great falling out that she, you know, quite, you know, her feminism was, was, um, was born of a different era and a different time. So there was always that tension um, between them. I think ide- ideologically they were very different, um, and uh, and I think that, that yeah, I feel like it's it's hard. The conversation around black feminism is still obviously happening, happening, and complicated and complex. And um, it, it, we touch on it in the show very specifically. Um, you know, it touches on now that the fact of having intersectionality, which I don't think was really that is something that Darby sort of. Um, addresses and Gloria's attempts to sort of try to achieve that and her, you know, fa- failures at that and her successes at that and and all of it coming from a really idealistic place. Like, she's the most compassionate person and, you know, she's all about inclusivity, but sometimes it's, uh, it's more complicated than she thinks. There's this incredible um, sequence at the end of episode two with the, uh, you know, the the dancing and the remembering of her own uh, experience with abortion earlier in her life. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about filming that sequence and sort of what, what was in your head um, as you were putting that together. It was, it was a lot of fun. You know, the dancing stuff, I had a a tap dancing trainer (laughs) (laughs) who I relied on heavily uh, up in Toronto. Um, So we spent about a half of two months trying to practice that dance. Um, and uh, unlike Gloria, I'm not a trained dancer, and I <laughs> took every effort in my <laughs> in my uh, brain to get try to get that right. Um, and uh, initially, reading the script, it's um, it, they it didn't read like that. That was part of the edit. So when I saw it, that they had sort of inter interwoven that those two, the flashback and the present day, was just so moving and so heartbreaking and. Uh, I was really taken aback when I watched it. I, I thought it was really powerful the way they the way they um they they put that together. Yeah, and I was I was talking to Davi about how I mean you know it's really striking when you watch um, this series. Of course, how much hasn't changed or progressed uh, in the decades since these conversations were being had. Um, But then there's also just moments Mm -hmm. of, of really beautiful triumph that I actually, I, you know, I cried multiple times um, watching, watching this series. Was there anything that was particularly any moment that was particularly um, emotional for you to, to film or, or see in the finished product? It was very emotional when we filmed, um, Shirley Chisholm up on stage with all the other nominees. Um, that day was really took us all aback. We were all in floods of tears. It was very emotional. Yeah, uh, I, I can't quite describe 
the feeling, I mean, obviously, it's obviously why, just this incredible image of all these men and this one woman who's also a woman of colour. It was really extraordinary, really extraordinary. And, um, and also filming the scene at the Houston convention when um, the lesbian rights is, is, is passed on the floor and, um, and we start singing We Shall Overcome. That was also very emotional. Yeah, those sort of big group sequences and moments um, groundbreaking moments in, in the decade were, were really took on a life of their own. I was talking to Kate about playing Phyllis and, you know, I, I know it's, it's the, it's the job of the performer to find empathy for whoever they're playing, uh, no matter who they're playing. Uh, but you know, Kate was saying, yeah. uh, it was really tough, uh, sometimes with Phyllis to, to, to figure out how to be on her side. Uh, you know, Gloria is obviously an, an easier person to, to empathize with, to, to be on her side. But was there anything that was particularly tough about her for you to access as a performer? I suppose for just trying to find that power within her stillness. You know, she has such a power that it is within this sort of stillness and within a certain control. Um, and that, that, that there's an element of the steeliness there that I feel like that, that is, that was challenging at times to try to access that in scenes where there was conflict or, um, but I think that's probably what, if that's what you're feeling, that's what you're supposed to feel. But, um, that's my kind of belief anyway as a performer but um but that 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 was definitely challenging yeah and also sometimes my hair was just in my face all the time. <laughs> <laughs> challenging as well I was like how did she do everything and also she always had these incredibly long nails and I was like how did she do anything with these nails they'd constantly be breaking and I'd be getting more manicures and I was like this is challenging I'm so not she's such a groomed person and I'm not that way at all. I'm like basically a tomboy and she's she's a lady. She's truly quite groomed. And <laughs> that to me was like such an achievement. Okay, so the flip you know, the flip side of of this um you know, trauma for Gloria is, you know, everything that Betty is going through from this blind date she goes on to encountering her um, husband's new wife, um, et cetera, setting her up to be particularly vulnerable to a personal attack from Phyllis when it comes to debate time. Um, and I, I, th- I love this, this, like the the first date is really good because like Ullman's bringing this like really nervous energy to it uh, in a way that I you know just try to be dazzling and witty but also nervy in a way that I really like. But I also love the moment that precedes it, which is her picking her dress for the date, and she picks this dress she wore on the Tonight Show. This is an actual you know appearance that happened that uh, Betty Friedan was on the Tonight Show in the '60s. They like got the set exactly right. Um, and so she picked this dress from this time when she felt like at the height of her powers uh, to wear to what we presume is a, like a fictionalized um, blind date. And that, that just like really, really got me <laughs> um, yeah. th- that juxtaposition. And I think they played up, well, not played up. I think they played exactly right um, in in the opening scene, but also this scene like, and maybe a little bit at the garden party, like she's maybe drinking a little too much. You know, like, like, right, or not right. too much, but like she, she, she's tightly wound and is finding a quick way to unwind, you know? Um, and it presents something 
that is, I mean, I think appeals to a sort of reflexive um, instinct in a lot of people, which is like a kind of like, oh, the messy woman, like, oh, like, like, you know, uh, compare her to Schlafly, who is so ordered and pinned up and, you know, everything is so perfect. And, 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 and Steinem, who has her own sort of version, free flowy kind of version of, you know, aesthetic perfection. Elegance. Yeah. yeah Whereas yeah, yeah. Friedan and, and, and yet, you know, all of that kind of erratic energy, its source is the same source that, you know, helped birth the movement, you know, and so that that kind of sad conflict of someone who, you know, bursts something out into the world, but then sort of couldn't, um, at least in this show's estimation, really find footing in her kind of private life um, is, yeah, it's, um, it's a it's a really interesting portrait of, of someone who I kind of have only known as the author of that book. Right, exactly. Um, and it makes you just want to know more and more and more about, or that's my reaction is I want to know more yeah. and more and more about these women. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, on the, on the other side of this debate, uh, Phyllis is preparing and, um, I was watching another Good Morning America, um, interview with Phyllis and Fred Schlafly where she said, um, that he taught her everything she knew about debating. So I think that, you know, that gives credence to this, behind the scenes um, pr- debate prep that they're doing. Right. Um, this is something that Schlafly said happened. And, um, but, but then everything else there is of course fabricated because we don't know that, you know, Fred, you know, personally attacked her and taught her that that's the best way to win a debate. Um, but that's the lesson she takes. And so, you know, he attacks her about her mother, which we already know is a sensitive point for her her mother who worked extremely hard to give Phyllis what she had. And Kate Blanchett has this incredible post-debate practice scene where she gets her daughter and like throws her into the pool with her and then like cries about it. Um, what, I mean, like, I don't know. Sometimes I'm watching the show and I'm like, I don't, I, I don't mean to be f- too effusive, but I'm like, I don't know how I got so lucky as like to get to watch Kate Blanchett do things like this on a weekly basis on a TV show. But, um, I just, I think this is a tremendously powerful invented, uh, encapsulation of, of the internal contradictions of, of Philosophy. Well, yeah. And I think that, you know, on, on the one hand, you obviously, you know, the fact that her mother who had no help after her, you know, the father left and, and, you know, basically afforded Phyllis a a better life, um, at least, you know, economically, um, you can appreciate that and the gumption it took, and you can appreciate that Phyllis appreciates that. Um, at the same time, I think that scene, uh, falls short of, which is good, of turning it into this kind of like, oh, well, they're okay. They, you know, we've cracked it open. Like that's why Phyllis cares. And, you know, we, we should, we should, it, we should be easier on it. What, what the show kind of, I think really highlights there is that like she has a deep appreciation for women who do this, but now that it worked for her, she wants to stop it, you know, Cl- close the door, behind close her. the door behind her, pull the ladder up, but also in a, in a very blinkered way that I think a lot of conservative ideology does is, assume that you can sort of prescribe a mandate on the world and thus order everything into its perfect shape, 
you know, which is impossible. You can't do that. The best you can do, and what the progressive side argues for, I think, is to make it as easy for people to live the lives that they are living individually rather than um, say, well, no pornography and no this and no that and women in the home because that is my idealized version of how my life worked and so therefore it must be prescriptive for everybody. You know, so I think you see that the, the, both the internal struggle of, of Schlafly while also remembering that her, her broader politics like really shut down that opportunity for a lot of people um, and that she doesn't seem to notice that contradiction or does and doesn't really care uh, is something I think at root of that that character. Right. It's why she's so fascinating. Or one of the many reasons why she's so fascinating. And, and maybe that sounds like, as you said earlier, too much, uh, you know, interest to give to a woman who did so much damage to the women's movement. But I do, I do find that internal contradiction incredibly fascinating and especially the way that Kate Blanchett plays it. Um, let's hit one more parenting thing with Phyllis before we head to the debate, which is that we get, you know, you, you had mentioned earlier that you uh, were aware of the fact that Phyllis Schlafly's son was a gay man and you were wondering if the show would touch on it. Um, this is sort of like our f- first most meaningful foray into that in that, you know, John Schlafly is earnestly and emotively playing the organ for his friend Tommy, who's getting married. And it's very clear that John has emotions around that and Phyllis, and it does not escape Phyllis's uh, notice. I mean, who Um, among us has not shot Mooney looks (laughs) at a man in uniform while playing a pipe organ? It's just a common experience. Uh, Right. A passage, right. Mm -hmm. A passage there. So, yeah. Um, I mean, there's more to come on that, but like, do you have any thoughts on, on this early, um, you know, well, I think just going back to what I just said is that like Phyllis is order is fighting for a sort of ordered, idealized American family life when right in her own house, uh, there is a deviance from that, you know, right. and I think it'll be interesting to see how she kind of reconciles that with what she's trying to do. I mean, I think that that really what this boils down to, I think, in terms of this, you know, emerging portrait of Phyllis Schlafly is it's really a desire for power and control and this is the outlet she chose um the irony being that the women's rights movement is trying to empower as many women as possible you know and so in fighting that she's finding her own personal power at the expense of all else of all others so that brings us to the debate where you know we've got this great pre-debate interaction between betty and and phyllis in the bathroom this like incredibly awkward moment where Betty comes out of the bathroom and is sort of like trying for a second to flirt with Fred. Um, and, and then Phyllis's sort of like on stage eventual evisceration. I mean, like Betty gets a lot of points on her before this eventual evisceration, but you're just like, you're so, I feel so much for Betty because like she's fleeing the scene, even as there are throngs of young women lining up, like wanting her autograph. It's not that she, she's so much more disgrace in her own mind than she is in reality. There's still this huge crowd of people who want to adore her um, and thank her. And she's just, you know, over overcome with her own perceived failure. Um, And that's just, I mean, it's just, it's so well done. Yeah. It's, it's well done and it's horrifying because again, like we were talking about earlier, it's like, Man, this is how they keep doing this. You know, this is, this yeah. is just, it's, it's just such an effective strategy, 
you know, um, the bait and then the back away. And then they're like, oh, well, I'm, you know, I'm so, you know, you may not agree with everything I say, but at least I'm not crazy. At least I'm not some mess. You know, I'm not trying to like cram anything down your throat. All I'm saying is it would be easier if we just kind of had these rules, you know, Um, and it's so sinister. Um, It's, you know. I, I, not that J.K. Rowling is an unimpeachable political voice these days, but like, I wouldn't be surprised if part of, uh, Dolores Umbridge, Umbridge. who is very Thatcher, obviously, Margaret Thatcher, but like, there's definitely some Schlafly in there, for sure. Oh, of course. Of course. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and then like, you know, Betty has this asthma attack in the bathroom, which I see as sort of like a mirror of this kind of panic attack that Phyllis had in the pool earlier, you know, and it's just like these women are drowning, um, each on their own side of the fight. And it's just, it's really powerful. And, you know, and then like one of the, one of the last things we get is this, I think very fictional, but nice to see healing phone call between Gloria and Betty, where Gloria says, you know, thank you your book changed my life. Thank you. That she is, you know, one of the throngs of young women who, you know, that Gloria Steinem wouldn't be Gloria Steinem without Betty Friedan. And that needs to be acknowledged and respected. It's a carefully worded scene though, you know, because she says, Oh, you know, if I had been there, I would have, which would have been, you know, tame or something, you know? Uh, And, you know, thank you for writing the book. It changed my life. That's all she says. She doesn't say, Okay, now going forward, I'm going to listen to you more. Now going forward, we're, you no, know, you know, exactly. she, she's basically saying like, uh, person to person on a private nighttime phone call, I hear you. And thank you for everything. That said, I'm going to keep doing things my way. So I think, yeah, it's a, it's a subtle bit of, of, um, you know, it's not a broad sort of like, you're right. I was wrong kind of thing at all. Right, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to me, the glorious diamond of all, you know, like she, she got her start. One of the things that put her on the map in the first place is this whole, like, she went undercover as a Playboy bunny, um, in, in the Playboy mansion and, or, you know, in the restaurant. I don't know where, but like, she was in the club, expo- the Playboy expose, club. Yeah. in the club. Yeah. yeah, there you go. In the club. And, uh, and that is something that I think just forever stuck on her and she couldn't, shake it and she was so respected and she fought so hard and she was still undermined her entire life because of of that because of her beauty and then to watch you know betty feel similar frustrations not because she's unattractive because she has her her allure her seductive quality sort but just because she's like so you know, that frenetic energy that we were discussing, that like messiness to her, um, and the frustration she feels around that. And, you know, it's just to watch all these women struggle, um, and, and to see their struggles acknowledged as not lesser than, but, you know, just different struggles that women go through, um, I think is incredibly powerful. Mm-hmm. All right, so this feels like a good time to go to our chat with the great Tracy Ullman. Um, I've been a I've been a huge fan of your of your sketch work for so long, and um, I'm wondering if there's a, a difference in the way in which you approach playing a real life character for something like this versus playing it um, in your sketch work. No, I really just keep things real. I study very hard to grab the reality of people, and I think doing. Uh, I, I, I like to be funny, but um, I'm not a comedian doing an impersonation. And I, I, I 
I've worked very hard to be taken seriously as an actress. And uh, it was hard for me to get this part. There were people that really believed I could do this and that I, that's what I do. And then some people were like, oh, is it like an impersonation? Is it like mm-hmm. it's on a certain level? It's not got the heart. It's not that encompasses, it's not the intelligence or the perspective. And that's, you know, that sort of, I'm 60 now, and it was like, wow, that you people don't get. You know, I, I can't be Angela Merkel and, you know, Judy Dench and Theresa May and the last show that I did without really being able to do it and believe in them and understand those people. So um, uh, it's harder doing comedy, my God. You write a scene about a man leaving his wife in a drama. It's a lot harder to make that funny if you do it. (laughs) So no, I don't. I don't see any difference. Um, I'm certainly not playing for laughs. I don't think I ever try to do that too much. So for Betty specifically, what is your approach in terms of studying her and and getting into her skin? She's a certain type of American that just fascinates me. Her her ego and her confidence and, you know, was uh, something that just shone through to me. And I loved her husky voice. And I love that she's not from New York. And I could really hear that. You know, everyone just say, oh, she sounds like she's from New York. She's like a liberal New York. No, she's not. She's from Peoria. <laughs> Listen to her. She says, our daughters. You know, you can hear that in there. And she was so passionate and bohemian. And I think I read The Feminine Mystique when I was in my 20s because I'd read The Second Sex by Simone de Beauvoir, which is really the European precursor to all this and uh i just love the way she always looked like herself she didn't ever try to dye her hair or in that scene where she goes on the the carson show in the 60s and says well my husband did shut my husband up i say the word orgasm then times in a row and i love that i thought to have said that sort of stuff in the early 60s which just freaked america out So I loved her bravery. I think she was abrasive. I think she 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 ruffled people's feathers, and she was tough. I think she was a tough woman. Do you think, you know, what what benefit is there in the in a movement like this to have a Betty and a Gloria? Well, they were so different, you know, intellectually and well, not intellectually, just just physically. I mean, it's 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 down with women. It's always physicalities that count for something unfortunately and uh, I think uh, Bella Abzug mentions that in the series a lot to to, you know Gloria you're going to walk into a room full of senators and you're going to change their minds because of how you looked you know and me and you know I've always felt that me and Bella Betty and Bella were of a physical type and uh, and yeah it took it it was there was took all sorts and they were so different and I think Betty was hard on Gloria she came 10 years after her and she sort of took over the movement, became the sort of glamorous side of it. And I think Betty had worked long and hard and she was pissed off when they, you know, she was getting the attention and this, uh, all that hair, you know, <laughs> she says that in her episode. And uh, she was, there's lots of stuff, as you know, on record, you know, of her, them 
dissing each other and having disagreements and being very cruel to each other. And Nora Ephron's article about Miami. I read it. I read and, it. Uh, that was tough on Betty. It's nasty. It's nasty. Well, she could be tough, Nora. Mm. You know, she was a brilliant woman. She, but she's she was hard on her. Yeah, I mean, she's it's almost like Steinem had. She was like on Steinem's side or something. But right. uh, it was tough. Women are tough on each other. You know that. My daughter's in politics and she works. She's had many jobs and she and she's works for a charity now. She, she worked, the one job she had when she worked for an all-women organization, she was so excited. It's all going to be all women, Mark. What's the time, the toughest time she ever had? She went, oh, my God. She said, I wish I was a few men. She went, all women together were nightmares. <laughs> I'm curious. You were, you were in your early teens uh, years overlap with, you know, the decade that you're covering on the show. What was your relationship to the movement at that time as an early teen? Oh, you know, I was in England. I was a teenager. I was a dancer. I, feminism was a word associated with, you know, people. Fellas laughed at girls that said they were feminine. I got hairy armpits, have you? <laughs> you know, it just it was like synonymous with being sexless, humorless. You know, you right. couldn't. It was very hard to be a feminine. I remember Jermaine Greer uh, being on TV a lot at that time, and she was kind of sexy and. Int- I mean, I think it would be would have been great to have had Jermaine Greer in this series, um, but. Feminism was no. I was too young. I was like sixteen, seventeen, and I, I, uh, but I never felt held back being a girl. I always felt equal to the guys, and I, I never played the coquette or dressed to please a man. I was always like, you know, I, 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 I like being female and feminine, and but I, I was, I wasn't angry at men, and I. Never felt held back in my career by men. I did begin to know, and I always used female writers and um, production people and all the shows I did. And, uh, but I never was humorless about guys or, like, angry at them because that doesn't help, you know. Some of them are useless. They don't get women. And some guys are great. They seem to fall into two categories. Some guys are never going to get it. Mm-hmm. And some guys are the best. I was married for 30 years to the a wonderful, wonderful man who totally got women and respected women and loved women and had women working for him. And was my biggest fan. So I had this amazing marriage and, um, you know, he was a, a great example of just a guy that got women. Is there a time in your life where you remember, uh, you know, being able to call yourself a feminist, if, if that's something you call yourself and it not being, not feeling like such a big deal? Yeah, I think as I got older and, you know, you develop politically as you get older It's uh, and you're more comfortable with who you are and, mm-hmm. you know, you, but you, it doesn't seem to be like, it's not synonymous with hairy armpits and being boring and sexless and right. you know, guys saying, oh, you know, you just need a good man type stuff. Now. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly not that way anymore. Uh, but I don't want to also be one of those women that's just, you know, sometimes within our, the business I'm in, it's just like women in film, women in comedy. What's it like to be a woman doing this? What's it like to be a woman writing this? Right. What's it, and it's like, I don't want to keep talking about those differences. You know, women's film festivals, women's, you know, it's just like, this is, keep everyone joining in. Let's have some fellas around too. Otherwise, you know, what do you want to make just all female TV shows for? That's never been interesting to me. You know, it's, 
that's that's not you know that's that's not the way I feel either. Um, a big question in this episode is um, whether to ignore Phyllis or whether to confront Phyllis. Mm-hmm. Um, and and Betty felt like it was important to debate Phyllis and and show expose mm-hmm. the holes in her logic. And you know, Gloria is like, let's not give her that air. Um, mm-hmm. That's still a question I think that we face all the time. Do you give yeah. someone like this the air or not? Um, you know, what's your instinct? What is the right move here? Yeah, I mean, I think Betty really called it early on Finnish Lovely. She figured out she was a threat to them and she was she would build her base of um, housewives because Betty knew this type of woman more than I think people like Gloria and Bella did, being from like liberal, you know, bubbles in a way like New York because she was from Peoria she knew these kind of women she knew their power of organizing um and she didn't want to challenge her I think probably she took her on to sort of prove to the girls that she could do it she was still the leader of the movement um and she did give her credence and then uh, it fell foul of her because the debate scene which you see is culmination of the episode I'm in I read the transcripts of that wasn't televised. Good Morning America debate was. So you can see Betty loses it with Phyllis. Phyllis is very smart. She's eloquent. She's she has one couple of you know talking points and she sticks to them. And she just frustrated the hell out of Betty. And if you read the transcripts of that debate, it it's. She's got everyone on her side. It's a wonderful audience for her. It's all those young women who are liberated and educated and. And then the very end, you know, she's saying all this good stuff and get a good response and Phyllis is sort of just sticking to her message but floundering a bit and then she calls her an Uncle Tom, female Uncle Tom, and I want to burn you at the stake. And what gets remembered from the whole thing, those lines. None of the debate that happened before. So Betty had a temper and she let her get to her and uh, she didn't handle it very well, you know. But that's a lovely part of the episode. You see her fail and, of course, you, we didn't see the private side of them so much, you know, and, and then to imagine her going home to her apartment in New York and feeling terrible and knowing she floundered and then having Gloria call her at the end is in, and saying, you know, you meant a lot to me. And to be to sympathise with her was, uh, I mean, it's a, that's the great writer that Darby Waller is, to imagine that that's what might have happened. It's, it's just lovely women helping other women and just when you're down, you know, and saying, right. Well, to any of us the woman drives it crazy but uh she did try she did recognize the the threat of phyllis before any of them did but handled it badly herself yeah i I watched that good morning america uh debate and it was it was so upsetting to see someone you agree with ideologically still seem to lose a debate you know yeah frustrating and yeah um, yeah um, I'm wondering if behind the scenes, you know, sometimes uh, in projects like this, um, performers prefer to maintain their on-screen relationship sort of off camera to, you know, not stay fully in character. But I'm wondering what your relationship was like with the other actresses on this show, or did you sort of self-isolate to get sort of Betty's isolation from these women? Yeah, I never, I, I mean, I don't, I sort of stay in character when I'm mm-hmm. dressed up. Because it's fun. I like talking to the crew and people sometimes as my the people I have become. Like you know, right. from the show I do is you know I, I mean there's nothing more charming than talking to the crew or there's Judy Dench. 
they'd love it. They'd rather I be Judy. Um, so, no, we got on great as a group of women and actresses. I mean, I was so proud to be, I think I was the last one cast, and they gave me such a tough time casting me. Um, to be in that group was fabulous. And we all lived in Toronto and we all had visited each other's houses and we all still get on great now. We've all been Zoom. My first Zoom was with all of them, <laughs> Marco and Rose and Ari and Sarah. Um, and no, I didn't. I mean, I, I wasn't sort of like the one set apart. I mean, like that scene at the barbecue. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the odd thing was actually when all of us livers would be on the set because they, and then we'd see one of the Phyllis women come in for like a wig fitting or a makeup test, and there'd be these like blonde people at the other <laughs> end of the go, It's a Phyllis person. <laughs> <laughs> they look so odd, you know, to us. They were like Stepford wives to us. Um, <laughs> so, but that was the, another lovely part of the show, the way we all got on. So I've never worked on a production where there were so many women as the leads and female you know our director of photography is a woman and the uh so many female directors and directors of color and it was fabulous it was but not overwhelmingly so you know it wasn't like we're the girls we're just going to do everything it wasn't that it was so uh it's one of the greatest nicest jobs i've ever done actually i really enjoyed it um and my last question to you and thank you again so much for your time and the work is um do you think do you think the ERA still matters? Because I've heard people, very leftist feminist people say it doesn't matter anymore, but do you feel like it still matters? Is it something we should still be fighting for? Yeah, it would be nice to see it completed. It would be nice closure, wouldn't it? After all these years, if Virginia ratifies and yeah, I mean, it does, it, things have changed so much and the things that it was based on all those years ago don't quite that aren't quite around anymore but no I think it does matter it's a symbolic thing now it would be terrific they fought so hard for it these women they went through murders for us you know and the generation before the suffragettes what they went through you know you've got to value these are hard won rights and if we lose them it's tragic you know it's that you just can't take them for granted you know the right to choose and everything it's under threat and it's it's this was fought, we fought hard for these things and in this country too. And if it slips away, it's, we can't believe it's going to slip away. And then when it does, you think, oh my goodness, we've got to get back out there again. Right. And I don't want to have to do that. We have to treasure what we've, they've achieved for us. So I have such respect for this generation. I really do. Excellent. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's lovely to talk. I'm glad we figured out the technical oh, stuff. Oh, yeah. Beautiful. Worked out the kinks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of our discussion of episode four, um, which uh, is the first of a few debates. We'll see. Uh, next week is a four-way debate, Phyllis and Fred and Brenda and Mark, um, <laughs> where uh, Phyllis Schlafly and her husband debate sort of the a liberal uh, superstar team. Um, and we'll see how that pans out for them. Until then, Richard, where can folks find you? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Rylaws, and I'm covering TV and film at VF.com. Find me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This and at VandyFair.com, and maybe watching some Mary Tyler Moore. Oh, yeah, good call. My free time. <laughs>